sorry just... to interrupt. I think the cat's going to shit in the bath. Hang on. Sorry. Oh, dear. <laughs> sorry to interrupt. I think the cat's going to shit in the bath. Standard Issue. For all women. Hello and welcome to episode 141 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and this week I conducted my first ever Twitter poll. What was your poll about? So Gary has started putting a tin of tuna fish into a tin of soup and then heating it up on the hob. And the soup is whatever flavour he's grabbed out of the cupboard. And I needed to find out whether the rest of the world slash Twitter was as appalled by this monstrous behaviour as I am. I don't know why you're marrying him. That's awful. What's the question? Should I leave him? (laughs) Maybe it should have been. But 5% of people and like 400 people voted, 5% of people thought Gary had the right idea. Is he? Because he's quite an, he's a very active man, isn't he? Is he? Is he trying to get a bit of extra protein, do you think? No, he just said he liked the meaty, fishy morsels appearing in his soup. I put extra vegetables in my soup. I don't need to do a Twitter poll about that, Jen. That seems like a perfectly <laughs> cromulent thing to do. <laughs> I'm wondering if he's trying to save time by eating all his meals at the same time. <laughs> he chucks a custard tart in there as well. Yeah. <laughs> Glass couple, of wine. A couple of after eight mints. <laughs> <laughs> Two eggs, bacon and a side of toast. <laughs> I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and last week, in an attempt to reassure her, I told my mum something Matt Hancock had said, (laughs) and then I punched myself in the face. (laughs) Don't worry, Matt Hancock's got you back. Oh, hang on. I can't believe it. She was fretting about her jab, which she's now had, which is great. Oh, that's amazing. And I said, look, Mary, Matt Hancock has said everyone will get, all the people over 70 will get one by the 15th of February. And then I just thought, what are you doing? Mouthpiece for the government. Hannah, do you not listen to yourself on our podcast? <laughs> no, I know. I don't know. What I, first sign of lockdown madness, I think. I'm Jen Offord and I accidentally did dry January and now I need to accidentally stop eating sausage rolls. When you say accidentally eating sausage rolls, is it like you slip and land with your mouth open on a no, sausage No, I need roll? to accidentally stop it like I accidentally did dry January. Do you see okay. what I mean? I'm not accidentally... I'm very purposefully eating the sausage rolls. Okay. I like to tell myself... Do you put myself, them in soup? <laughs> I like to tell myself that, uh, basically, when I was pregnant, I decided I'd just eat all the shit that I wanted to eat. And uh, and I kept telling myself it was because I was pregnant. And so, you know, I... I, I did could. a very similar thing with lockdown. I well, exactly. Say. I think it was nothing I'm to do with own. me... It was nothing to do with me being pregnant and everything to do with me wanting to eat pork pies every day. And um, <laughs> unfortunately, it's a habit that I found quite difficult to shake. Uh, but I didn't drink any booze in January. So, you know, there there is that. Later on, I chat to Professor Oliver Atelli, the UK's first black female history professor, about missing history, African-Europeans and the toppling of Edward Colston. I talked to Kerry Doherty about growing up in the Troubles, how nature can help your mental health and her really beautifully written debut book, Thin Places. In Jenny Off the Blocks, I chat to tennis pundit and former world number five, Joe Jury, ahead of next week's Australian Open. And... In Rated or Dated, we wonder, <sighs> is bad acting infectious? As we watch The Jazz Singer, the 1980s one. Oh. Not that you could tell, I don't think. <laughs> but more on that later. But first, entitlement writ large, the race to the bottom and an identity crisis live on air. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush 
Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we are absolutely in awe of podcasts with weekly news roundups. Guys, how do you do it? It's amazing. It is amazing. <laughs> Just spare a thought for them. I know. How do they do it? In these what is wrong times? with him? I don't know. It's so weird. It's so weird, isn't it? To be a parent and be like, I'm in awe of parents. Why? You're doing it yourself, aren't you? Oh, no, you're not is doing he, it yourself. Is he? You're no. not doing it yourself. So, Mick, guess who? It's one rule for, but a different one for everyone else. There are so many options, Jen. So I'm going to say Tory ministers. I mean, I can understand why you might think that that's an obvious conclusion to reach at this point in time. But how about Rita Ora? Sorry, who? <laughs> you know, the one who had a song nine years ago and now does the TV show I don't watch. Uh, sure. You know, the TV show you don't watch either. Oh, that one. Yeah, yeah got that it. one. Yeah, got it. So ordinarily, I wouldn't have much to say about Rita Ora either. But unbelievably, she's elicited strong emotions from me this week. <laughs> Let me take you back to December last year when Aura made the headlines after it transpired she'd breached lockdown rules not once when she came back from a private gig in Egypt and didn't bother to self-isolate, but twice when she held a spur of the moment, in inverted commas, 30th birthday party for herself and invited her pals. How lucky that they were all available. I know. Last week, at a licensing hearing for Casa Cruz, the restaurant where Aura's party was held, police said Aura's representatives had offered £5,000 for use of the premises and asked for CCTV to be turned off during people arriving for said party. Seems legit. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so police said that CCTV hard drives were blank two days after the party and the venue is accused of breaching licensing regulations by failing to provide the footage. Mm. That sounds a little bit like, I don't know, providing the course of justice, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you might remember a week previously when Home Secretary Pretty Patel, tough on crime, tough on the causes of a reduced rate in shoplifting while all the shops are closed. She told the press that irresponsible rule breakers would likely face tougher penalties. So you'll forgive me for feeling pretty fucking livid that in this case... Patel would like Aura and other celebrities and influencers to, and I quote, think very, very hard about their own actions. Were they considered responsible rule breakers as opposed to irresponsible rule breakers? I don't breakers? think so. I think they were very mm. much considered irresponsible, but I'm going to nail my colours to the mast here and say I think that everyone involved in this is a grade A bellend and yep. Aura more than anyone else. But apart from making me feel like a Daily Mail reader, such are the <laughs> levels of my fury regarding this, there is a serious point. Well, there's a few when you think about the fact that holding a party right now might literally kill people. Uh-huh. See previous point about bell injury. But that point is that if your penalty for breaking rules is a slap on the wrist and a fine, guess who's going to be more inclined to decide on balance? Ah, fuck it, I'll take the risk. Is it someone with a healthier bank balance than, say, you or I, Jen? I'm going to say yes. I think it is going to be those people. So it's basically, it's just, it's just so wrong, isn't it? It's just so fucking wrong on every level. I do have a query to make about what you've just said, though, because you say that everyone in there is a grade A bellend. Mm. Absolutely no quibbles for me on that. <laughs> but you say aura more than anyone when you have just talked about Pretty Patel. Mm. Yeah, I know that's tough, isn't it? How mm. could you outbellend Pretty Patel? But I actually think she's—I think she's edged it for me. 
controversial. <laughs> At us with your opinions, listeners. <laughs> there is a litany of shit going down in the UK. Quite literally in Buckinghamshire, as it turns out, Thames Water has been discharging untreated sewerage into Chesham's River Chess. The absolute shower in charge are hooting and tooting about the successful vaccination programme in England as if it's going to erase the collective memory of all previous deadly errors. So Captain Tom Moore's got COVID, racism and anti-Semitism are rife, cancer patients are in limbo, Keir Starmer's increasingly a limp lettuce, the government's using so-called Henry VIII powers to mm. evade parliamentary scrutiny and... As we record, the fat cats in charge are still saying there'll be no rollout of free school meals over the February half term. I've missed that, really? Yeah, it's as if they're surprised every time kids have a holiday that they're going to need feeding again. It's like, why did they not? Are they not full from last time? I thought I just I just thought this was dealt with now. (laughs) I mean, it's a reasonable conclusion to come to, Jen, but we are not dealing with reasonable people. No. Um, and on top of all of that shit, we do, of course, have the grade eight doesn't apply to me bellendery that Jen just talked about. And so it is all too easy to think we are world beating at being the worst. <laughs> Let's head over to Russia, oh, where police have paralysed the centres of the country's largest cities, including Moscow, as the Kremlin seeks to beat back rallies in support of jailed opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Apologies to any Russian listeners for my incredibly awful pronunciation there. Alexei Navalny. Thanks, Jen. Can you say that every time it needs saying? I need you to say that. I'm just going to edit it in. Supporters of the Kremlin critic took to the streets to protest against his jailing, despite the bitter cold and the threat of arrest. Imagine, imagine if fed up with his interrogations at PMQs, Boris Johnson and his cronies decided to allegedly attempt to poison Keir Starmer, (laughs) then have him thrown in the slammer when he returned home after treatment. I mean, I'm sure Johnson has imagined this with a smile on his face and a dream in his heart. But still, the British public would not stand for it. Okay, the British public probably, hopefully wouldn't stand for it. I don't think Boris Johnson has dreams in his heart. I think the only dreams he has in his heart are like eating pie and fucking women who he's not in a relationship with. His heart is too full of awe for how people manage to parent, Jen. He has no room. He's not got room for much else. But not standing for it. Well, the same goes for huge swathes of the Russian populace who are risking arrest by protesting Navalny's jailing. Go on, Jen. Navalny. Thank you. And so I had a little nose at the Moscow Times for more info. The website immediately asked if it could send me push notifications and I chuckled (laughs) as I pressed no thanks. Russian bots on my internet? I don't think so. Anyway, blue underwear and toilet brushes, a barrage of snowballs and snow graffiti have been some of the creative methods of demonstration. The blue pants, well, Navalny, who suffered an attack with the Novichok nerve agent in August, says that agents from the Federal Security Service placed the toxin in the lining of his blue underwear. And the toilet brushes reference a specific shit stick, allegedly costing 700 euros, found in a lavish property on Russia's Black Sea coast, which Navalny alleges cost more than $1.35 billion and is allegedly owned by Putin. There are a lot of alleges in there, Russian bots, if you're listening. Don't at me, or indeed poison me. There has been international condemnation. Even Dominic Raab's had a pop. No but way. the Kremlin, yeah, right, he's been involved. But the Kremlin doesn't seem to give him monkeys. And more protests are expected this week if... Navalny. ...is sentenced to prison time. Not the crux at all of what I've just said. But what the fuck makes a toilet brush cost 700 euros? I don't know, some like really hard... Um 
really clever tracking devices or like spyware. Yeah, you have got a bit more nuclear. I was thinking maybe it was like an electric toothbrush, whereas okay. you charged it up and then it just went for a really clean rim. Maybe. <laughs> Who knows? Would you like some good news, Mick, before you get taken away by the Russians? Yes, please. Okay. Now, I'm delighted that this particular piece of good news has a distinct Alan partridge kind of a vibe to it as well. So, let's talk white-tailed eagles. I thought it was never going to happen. <laughs> a consultation was launched last week regarding the reintroduction of said eagles to Norfolk. Norfolk! <laughs> Norfolk. The birds were previously persecuted to extinction, said an article on Positive News. And I don't really know what that means in the context of eagles, but it sounds shit. It does sound shit. I think it actually just means hunted. But like, who's who's hunting an eagle? I'm confused. How do you even do that? How do you hunt an eagle? I, I feel like that's harder than hunting a fox. But anyway, I digress. However, the birds have already been successfully reintroduced to the wild in Scotland and on the Isle of Wight. And the good landowners of Norfolk, led by the Ken Hill Estate, which is actually a conservation project and not the only bottle of wine left on the shelf (laughs) after the post-Brexit apocalypse. I would drink that. (laughs) Wouldn't we all? Anything at the moment. They thought, we want some of that round our yard. So tell your friends, white-tailed eagles are back, subject to consultation. Finally, an answer to the constant barrage of questions about white-tailed eagles. Thanks, Jen. Uh, (laughs) But to be honest, you do look like your good news vibes are still twitching. Uh, Yeah, a little bit. Uh, So a bonus piece of good news. The Muslim Council of Britain has elected its first ever female leader. Yeah, congratulations, 29-year-old Zara Mohammed, who said, I think women sometimes hesitate to take on leadership roles, even though they are more than qualified to do so. It's really important to engage young people, engage more women, and diversify the organisation and the work we're doing. Well said. Yeah. I have a little bonus fun fact too. If you have a calendar that runs Monday to Sunday, you'll notice that this February is a perfect rectangle. And that is something that only happens once every 200 years. My face isn't great for a podcast, but I'm thinking. I'm thinking hard. (laughs) Really? Yes. What's the reason for that? We've got the 28 days and it started on a Monday, Monday the 1st of February. Wow. Something that's blown my mind. (laughs) (laughs) On that bombshell, more news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we ask, Woman's Hour, you okay, hun? Because the landmark BBC radio show appears to be having a bit of an identity crisis. A new study has revealed, I mean, I say revealed, but what I'm about to say will, I doubt, surprise many women, that teenage girls are experiencing a sharper decline in well-being and self-esteem than teenage boys of the same age. Woman's Hour quite rightly decided to cover the news, and so it brought in Whitney Crenna Jennings, who wrote the report, and a teenage girl? No. A woman specialising in mental health? No. Author Matt Haig? Bingo bongo. No shade to Matt. I like him, and I relate to a lot of what he's written about his own mental health experiences. But do you know what he's never been? An astronaut. And also a teenage girl. And I'd be as dubious about him being called in as an expert on the realities of space travel as I am about his knowledge of what it's like to be a teenage girl. There are plenty of brilliant young women who could have spoken from first-hand experience. So to go to a middle-aged, middle-class white man is a baffling choice. I'm baffled, Jen. This would not have happened on Jenny and Jane's watch. 
Indeed, when Emma Barnett took the woman's hour till her last month, she promised in an interview with the Times magazine, more men! Why? why? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. As the excellent Claire Hugan pointed out on Twitter, the whole point of BBC Woman's Hour is to counter the marginalisation of female voices and perspectives in broadcast radio. With this choice of guests, they have reinforced the misogynistic message that teenage girls have nothing of importance to say. I couldn't agree more, and don't even get me started on the interview with Samantha Cameron about the size of her pants and what she thinks about Carrie Simmons. Apparently, her business has been adversely affected by Brexit. No shit, Sam Cam. How does it feel knowing your husband (laughs) sold his country down the river out of sheer hubris, then scarpered to put his trotters up in Nice? Twat. Twat. Hello, I'm joined on the Zoom by Oliver Atelli, Professor of the History and Memory of Slavery at the University of Bristol, an appointment in 2018 which made her the UK's first black female history professor and author of African Europeans and Untold History. Oliver, hello. Hello. Now, you're a Professor of History and Memory of Slavery based in Bristol, so I can't not ask you about last June's toppling of the statue of slave trader Edward Colston. Were you there? No, 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 I wasn't there, but I followed with astonishment what was happening. Um, it was actually circulating on, on social media mm-hmm. and was almost, you know, witnessing it live as it was happening. It was interesting. <laughs> the story in Bristol is quite differently perceived, whether you're from Bristol, you know the story and the background, or um, you came to, to understand the story of Colston just that day. Because Bristol has been dealing and talking about this for decades and decades. So this is really the result of a discussion that had, I think, reached a moot point. And young people just decided to do their thing and to topple the statue. But prior to that, people have written about it and uh, talked about it, conversations that were heated, taking place between communities, various communities, Society of Merchant Ventures, uh, universities. So, so it really is the result of something else than just a spontaneous action and event. People decided to do that. My views, I was astonished, of course, but at the same time, I thought that, you know, if it happens now, it means that it was time. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking, you know, Bristol will deal with the question when they're ready. And the focus has been on Colston, whereas there are so many other people who are involved in the slave trade and who've done uh, different things in the city. But for some reason, Colston became that, that figure. And I thought it actually obscured many things, such as, you know, blatant, absolutely horrific inequalities, social inequalities, racial inequalities, of course, but social as as well inequalities, you know. And these are the topics that have been dividing uh, Bristolians for for a a very long time, the distribution of wealth in a city that is, you know, so linked to colonial history. So, yeah, it's it's not just the statue, actually. Yeah, it, it felt like it was almost, and I'm not taken away from how important these emblems of of history are but it felt like it took away from other important discussions yes i mean some people some people think this is the beginning of something else as in now we've done it we can move on others are thinking well you know memorials and i'm working on memorialization and memory so memorials play an important part of who we are as society so the toppling means something it means a changing landscape or whatever you want to, to, to call it. I just see it as an organic thing that is happening with people when people are discontent. 
And I don't see it as a loss of anything because throughout our lives and our history, we, we lose so many things. We lose, we do lose statues. But that statue is, um, at the moment, is, you know, somewhere being restored, but it's protected somewhere because it's going to be able to tell a different story and the story of popular protest, actually. It does feel like there's a lot happening right now and in a very positive way. And within that, the fight against racism feels like it has an enormous impetus. But it does also feel like we've been here before in recent history. Do you think what's happening now will lead to lasting change? Yeah, well, I want to believe that. Yeah. It's terrible. It's terrible. But, you know, we, we always have that impression when we're living events and when change doesn't happen quickly or quick enough. But I actually think that things are changing. I studied a long history. So let's think of Britain. Well, England, for example, in the 16th century, then project yourself in the 18th century and look at the place that black people had in that society. Think about the black Victorians and then the 1919s and then think about now. There are some changes. Things have changed. Um, me, a black woman, I'm here sitting and being able to talk about it. So it, it means that, you know, things have changed. Not fast enough. And, and racism, you know, keeps changing as well and adapting. But I believe that this is a, a turning point. Your book, African Europeans, An Untold History, explores a history that has long been overlooked. And it really feels like the chapter, Claiming a Past navigating the present is is so key but it's not new by any means is it no what is new is the fact that i think we are able to look at history as something that is uh, for me at least a bit more organic we've studied british history we've studied african-american history we've studied, but the history of african europeans and is, is part of european history as much as part of african history it's about those multiple identities that some people keep fighting off. You know, we could be so many different things at the same time and claim those spaces happily, actually, with no guilt and no sense of inferiority. And that's really what, for me, this is about. So it's about rediscovering certain figures, but also accepting that we're from here and, and everywhere else. It's not a term that I've heard very much, African-Europeans, which, having read your book seems nonsensical why haven't we heard this term more because people like to i don't know people like perhaps clinging on to what they, they've heard so far what they know what feels comfortable it's not a term that uh, black british people or black french people would claim naturally for me it was really a provocation it was you know echoing the african-american term but also taking into into context the european dimension because not so much black British, but black Swedish and black French or black German see themselves as being part of a global network and a European network. So they're claiming that European identity as well. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, a provocation just, just to get people thinking, I hope. There's a really divisive either orness that comes with, with any of those terms, with any terms that's got a hyphen in it, I think, when we're talking about identity. You actually deal a lot in nuance, and I just wondered how that was going, because we're not, we're not used to nuance. Uh, it's, it's interesting for me, because um, it's like having a conversation with myself. You know, it, it, it's about even when you, you think you know who you are, there are things that are changing the way you perceive things. Um, I, I might be African-European, 
um, French, um, but also Britain has actually spent more time, I realize, uh, not long ago, I spent more time in Britain than in France. Uh, so I'm also claiming that space of Britishness, well, Welshness, to be precise, <laughs> you know, and, and so you, you, you shift even your views and your identity if you're part of certain communities, because that identity is not always accepted as such, but you claim it and you shift it and you defend it. I think with the identity and identity politics, we're at the forefront of a lot of conversations in a lot of people's minds at the moment. And we're sort of seeing hand in hand in, with this. And it's not, it's not a new thing, but this weird ownership of history with people making calls not, not to erase our history, like particularly with the statues that came up, while continuing to erase the history of millions of other people. Because there is a huge power in the writing of history and, you know, a continuing theft of power by denying people that history. Yes, I'm, I'm completely with you on this. For me, history is about we get to write and talk about that history or any other history. Uh, listen, again, in 2018, I became the first uh, black woman professor of history in the country. 2018. Come on. So it means that there are certain populations who are not given the space and the opportunities to write those kind of history. And uh, the erasure of history makes me smile immensely because the hypocrisy of this, when actually British history is not complete with those stories that we're hearing and that are considered to be on the margin, it would not be complete if we talk about imperial history and not talk about the slave trade. If we talk about statues without engaging with the legacies of those, of those um, characters uh, in contemporary Britain. So yeah, I think it's, a, it's hypocrite and in a way, uh, it makes me smile, not because it's that funny, but because it's so blatantly about faith, really. Yeah, I feel like History 101, I did history at school and at A-level, and History 101 is interrogate the source. And it's something that seems to have been very conveniently for a lot of white people forgotten. You put it really succinctly in the book, those with vested interest in the slave trade tended to try to justify enslavement. And today we're seeing those with vested interest in racism still trying to justify it yeah. and quite often pointing to history as a way to do so. Yes, it's, uh, it's lazy as well. It's lazy thinking. It's completely underestimating people as well. I find it so patronizing. We are as human able to accept all kind of complexity and variety. And we see that in children. You tell them something like sponges, they just absorb it, and they're able to give you details that you, you, know, you might think are completely pointless. But this is how, how it is. So we as people, we can actually take into account and absorb those, those histories and, and uh, accept that there are a variety of, of viewpoints. You use the word lazy there, and I couldn't agree with you more. I wrote a question that was, when you're telling the stories of people who have been overlooked and purposefully ignored in a lot of cases for so long... How do you go about finding the information? And then I thought, actually, Mickey, the information's probably just always been there. We just haven't looked. Is that about right? Yes, that's right. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm a strong believer that there are very few of us historians who come across an archive. You know, dun, 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 you find a box and everything is in there. Most of the time, it's been there for such a long time. And sometimes, and a lot of the time, somebody somewhere has written about it or has talked about it, shared it with their families or communities, and it hasn't been uh, put forward or taken forward for various reasons. So the stories that I am I'm, I'm telling, I'm not 
completely unknown. They're unknown. Some are some are unknown to other people, while, while other um, people will claim that. Well, but we've heard about it. For example, um, an Italian colleague was saying she she did an interview of me some some months ago for Vogue. Oh, <laughs> fancy! And she was saying, "Oh, but we, we've heard about Alexandra de Medici." I said, "Yes, you have." But then in France, some haven't. In Britain, some haven't. In Germany as well. So, so it's about who knows what. We all have knowledge, but it's about bringing that knowledge all together and making sense of those various strands. Do you think that with the huge amounts of information that are available today, that future historians will be able to have similar excuses of just overlooking people and not not charting it accurately well no this is why this is the thing though i think once it's out there it's it's us not historians but us as people historians non-historians everyone who's read the book or who's read any information about this who is going to take them to task you challenge them and this is how it's done because there's such a small number of professional historians it's up to the, uh, to, the, to the wider public now to do the job. And I think, you know, I really, really believe that there will be changes. We chatted with the Black Curriculum back in, oh, probably summer last year, about their brilliant attempts to try and get Black history taught in British schools. And I wondered what key pieces of history do you think should be taught in European schools? I think we should, when we're talking about multiple um, settings, we, we don't necessarily need to to start, in fact, I never do, start with a, the history of slavery. I always start with different points of departures. If it's the Americas, our, you know, indigenous population, if it's Africa, Africans before colonization and, and, and so on. Because what happens is when you start with colonial immediately, there's a dehumanization that, that took place centuries ago and that is still taking place. So in a classroom, you will have children who will feel completely miserable because, you know, they're equated to enslaved and enslaved people. And it's it's heartbreaking. I've seen I've seen many things happening like that in certain schools. So it's giving them a sense of perspective. You know, the history of colonization is a small part of uh, the history of humanity. And this is how it should be seen and, and perceived. It, of course, it's got long lasting and detrimental legacies, but it's all it's also about us as human being beings coming together and uh, creating a, a new society out of those terrible things. So if they understand that, then I think they will appreciate the fact that we are, it's a long history. It's much longer this history than we think. Absolutely. Your book really opened my eyes. Uh, you know, we're constantly told that at least things are better now and to be grateful for these incremental changes, which, you know, doesn't really wash. But there is this long, long history of Africans living in Europe. And in your book, the characters that you look at, the people that you look at, show that race wasn't necessarily a hurdle to achievement. And in certain eras, it, it sort of mattered less than it does now. Yes. Are you thinking about Septimius? Yes. Yes, it's about power. Okay, they, they were mostly men, but it is about your, your it's about class as well. Septimus came from a, a wealthy background and uh, he really wanted to have access to power. So determined and uh, it's not a, a success story because he was a ruthless leader. But it is about somebody who, 
you know, a, a society that was not necessarily focused so much on race that anything it trampled anything, you know, everything else. And it was important for me to end the story with him dying in York. So that, you know, people would just start thinking about what it means and how the, 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 the nation has been transformed and why that history is not taught enough, I think. But yeah, I mean, things, as I said, things might be changing and um, we'll see how it goes. I love your optimism and your book comes across as fundamentally hopeful. So my last question is, do you think the human race does and can learn from history? <laughs> That's an interesting question. I honestly think it can, but it doesn't necessarily want to. So it's about the priorities. Again, sometimes power becomes a priority, even though we, even if we know what lies beneath and, and beyond it. So, but yes, we can. I'm nodding, which is great for a podcast, but I am nodding <laughs> in, in agreement. African Europeans and Untold History is excellent. It's so engaging. It's published by Hearst and available from all good bookshops. Olivette, where can people find out more about what you're up to? Oh, there's a University of Bristol, but I'm a lot on Twitter. <laughs> My ranting page. You just took a little break and came back. Do you feel refreshed or did you immediately want to reach for your screaming pillow again? Oh, it feels as if we didn't have a break. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so, so much for sparing some time to chat to me. It's been fascinating. Thank you so very much for having me. Such a pleasure. Hello, I'm joined from across the Irish Sea by writer Kerry Nee Doherty. Hello, thank you so much for having me. We're talking on January the 20th, your debut book, Thin Places, which is about, among other things, growing up in Derry during the Troubles, is released in just over a week. How are you feeling? It is so odd because I'm just here talking to you. I've got a muddy dog by my feet and it just feels like a normal day. It doesn't feel in any way like what we might imagine it feels a week before publication. Yeah. I think we always think these, these big events are going to be you know, really life-changing, but actually it's like birthdays. You come along and you go, oh yeah, this felt the same as yesterday. I feel really grateful for the book, the whole way during writing it, the whole way during editing it and probably forever after. So I think publication is important, but the book's been happening for me for years. I am reading Thin Places. Full confession, I've not finished it, but that's because, and I absolutely mean this as a compliment, I don't think it's a, a book that you should rush through because there's a lot yeah. going on and I think it's good to put it down and never think about what you've read. But what I can say yeah. is I, it's absolutely beautifully written, Kerry, so great job. Thank you. I was going to say it's part memoir, part nature guide, part history of the troubles. And then I decided you're the best person to tell us what it actually is. I feel like I'm probably the worst person <laughs> to say what it is. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I really do feel like the person who writes the book is probably the person who would actually find it the hardest to define it. I do feel like this book is different from other books I've read and that I love in the respect that it is quite hybrid. I do love hybrid books anyway, but I think your description is really good. It is a bit of all of those. I think it's also potentially something that you only know when you've read it. It doesn't quite fit in any boxes. I guess that's maybe hard when you're marketing something, but it is difficult to define. It doesn't feel disparate. It feels very organic. Uh, you, you grew up during the trouble, so your childhood is formed by that. 
and you are interested yeah. in history and nature and in Ireland those things are quite intertwined as well. Recently another journalist asked me if I viewed myself as a nature writer and it was a, a really intriguing question because I just view myself as part of that world you know I don't view there as being a separation we're all nature at the moment there are goldfinches on the cedar just outside the window and there's also inside my gut and inside your gut there's this whole universe we're just as wild, you and I, and even though we're talking on the phone, we're just as wild as what's happening in the world outside. I view myself as a nature writer insofar as anybody that lives in the natural world that writes is writing about something that's part of the same world as everything that happens beside the door. But I think it's, like you've said, for some of us in Ireland, we're much more part of the land, the landscape and the outside world maybe than in other places. I write about what I'm drawn to in that respect. I also write about literature. I've been writing about sound and objects a lot recently too. So I think as a writer, you're always you're always kind of trying to write not necessarily just what you know, but what you know you're drawn to. Yeah. So I think in thin places, I've been intrigued by the early reviews that have come out. Have really focused on the political landscape. There's been a little bit of a mention potentially, you know, of the natural side as well. But at the beginning, it felt really weird to be reading that because you sort of forget my upbringing. It's part of my normal world. Mm. So you forget that that's not part of everybody's normal world and that that might be what someone would hone in in the book. Especially, I have to say, for the rest of the UK, because even though we grew up in the same country, the yeah. gulf between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK is huge yeah. and it's not just the sea. You're right. Yeah. It's such a beautiful part of the world and it's it so is, underappreciated it? and it's so rarely mentioned when people talk about the rest of the UK. I, I was interviewing Claire Allen, who is an yeah, author from Derry. She's amazing. And I was talking to her about what it was like to grow up during the Troubles under Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. And she would just say things and I would think, oh, my God. There's a bit where she was telling me about how her mum was hassling her off the street when one of the hunger strikers buried in Derry and his funeral was going past. And the idea that that would happen while I was in my front garden age five absolutely blew my mind. But you know what? I think that's incredible. I don't know how to word this. But basically, the more stories that are shared by people who did grow up at the same time but have these totally different life experiences, Mm. as well as crossovers, the more we can learn about our kind of shared collective experience. It's really, really, really important in the realms of healing. So, for example, the other day I was talking to a different journalist and she'd been really drawn to, in the book, I talk about Madonna's Borderline, the song, coming out. And she was really, really drawn to that, that her memories of that song coming out and say, my context of where I was at when that came out were so different, despite the fact that we're sort of in and around the same age. She grew up in England. I really, really, really love that. And I really think it's totally central in learning about shared experience because culture is an ongoing thing and that it's happening at the same time. But as you say, you can have all these really, really different experiences of it. I do think when we look back on this period, this particular part of this pandemic, 
that could be something too that will help us all, I suppose, to, to process what yeah. has happened during this time, how different it's been for some people, even though, you know, we keep hearing we're all in the same storm, but we're definitely not in the same boat. And learning about those boats and learning about the the stuff that was on those boats and the stuff that people had to carry and where their journeys took them in that particular storm is I think it's part of our collective healing. I have friends who grew up in really rural parts of Wales who are the same age as other friends that live in London. And when we've all been talking about things, I've realised, of course, it's not the same. And of course, it's different in the North of Ireland because of the troubles. Mm. But any kind of union between any places will only have particular crossovers and then there are these sort of vast differences. But I think unravelling those holds a lot of room for understanding the other person even if it's only like what was your I don't know what were your holidays like or you know what did you do on your days off but do you think it helps us a lot? I wanted to talk to you about Brexit which obviously you can't stay clear of with with Northern Ireland. Now the morning after Brexit I got up and wrote a piece about what my fears for the future were and right at the top of that list was what it meant for Northern Ireland because yeah. I grew up during the Troubles and I also yeah. imbibed a lot of Irish writing when I was younger. And it's always about identity yeah. and especially, you know, fellow Derry person, Seamus Heaney, you know, about borders yeah. and identity. And yeah. and personally, like the first time I drove across the border between the North and the Republic, I didn't realise that I'd done it until I'd done yeah. it and I actually yeah. found that to be quite a moving experience considering what it had been like yeah. when I grew up and yeah. the idea that that would be threatened I found absolutely terrifying can you yeah. maybe tell us a little bit about whether my fears and more importantly your fears on what Brexit might bring for Northern Ireland whether they are being realised or may still be realised I think it's incredible that you also had that experience of of driving over and not realising how moving that was because that's something that I've continuously been affected by and moved by, you know, throughout my life, this invisible line that cuts through farmyards and rivers and cuts through people's front doors and you couldn't have someone at every point along the border stopping people from crossing or asking them questions because of this fluidity, mm. because of this sort of shape-shifting, meandering line that is invisible, that was made by man and it was really only for man because you can swim at parts of the border. (laughs) You can stand with one foot in one part of the border and the other across the other. I think that when the UK voted in, and obviously I hate this phrase, when the UK voted to leave the EU because it's a misleading phrase because some people in the UK voted to leave the EU. Not not by any stretch, all of them. <laughs> it's an upsetting phrase in itself. But when that did happen, where enough people voted to leave the EU, I was completely devastated. It happened just a few months after I'd moved back to Derry from living in the mainland, as people would say, you know, from living in England and Scotland. And then I was really worried. And then, of course, what began to happen is even before the actual leaving of the EU, stuff started to ripple in in the north. A lot of services were cut. A lot of funding already began being taken out. Um, There was already a lot of kind of civil unrest. 
So already you could begin to see this shadow creeping in where there had only been light more or less for quite a long time. But then, intriguingly, obviously the question of the border hung over the discussions for such a long time. And then this very odd thing happened. It almost seemed to drop off the radar. It was everywhere for such a long time in discussions and then it just sort of stopped. Yeah. And other things seemed to be of more, not of more importance, they getting more air, I guess. Well, I think they were perceived as being of more importance, but whether they were is a different matter, yeah. Yeah, And that was interesting to experience. And then obviously now we are in the throes of of a global pandemic where for a very long time, Derry was the place in the UK in general that had highest cases. And then Donegal for a while at the same time was the place in Ireland that had the highest cases and you know, obviously with them both being border towns and with the freedom of movement between the two places, there was a lot of dialogue around that. And so these ideas of always being left with not enough, not enough services, not enough support in Derry, they came to the fore again for me. I'm thinking a lot about them. And then now that the UK has actually, you know, officially left, it is an interesting position to be in. My partner was just saying the other day, it is very odd because it's almost like we had four and a half years of worry and discussion around it and now it's happened. Don't really hear about it at all but that doesn't necessarily mean that the effects aren't still there that the ripples aren't still felt. So it's back to that thing of dialogue, back to that thing of what stories are coming out why are particular voices being given more sway? I think that's always going to be part of our story in the North. And of course, that affects entire UK. It also affects the entire island of Ireland because things take a long time to heal. They take time. That's in my book, I talk about time as being a really important thing. And when you have this big time period where lots of healing has taken place and then this massive seismic events comes into play it doesn't necessarily halt the healing so I don't think we're going to see the impact of this for quite some time, maybe a number of years. I'm hopeful that the people that live in the north the people that live in the border towns in general on both sides, I'm hopeful that they are not going to let things just continue as they used to be in the past and hope they'll make their voices heard I trust that it will be okay. I hope so. Now, you talk quite a lot about mental health in thin places, um, your own mental health and that of the people around you, because we are undoubtedly facing a mental health crisis. And like many things, and as this conversation has said, if we've got it bad here, you've got it worse in Northern Ireland. Yeah. You credit nature with saving your mental health, especially as a child. And there's a lovely quote in this book, which I've got here. I hope you never find yourself in a situation where you need to protect a child from witnessing bloodshed in the very streets on which they have no choice but to live. But if you ever should, I urge you, find books about wild creatures for them. Find them a microscope, a magnifying glass, anything that helps the unknown make sense. Now, since you wrote that, there's not bloodshed on the streets of the UK, but there is a lot of talk about death and there's a lot of fear of death all around yeah. us and we also have a lot of people at home with their children trying to occupy them 
So I wondered if people are a bit overwhelmed thinking, oh, I don't know anything about nature myself. How can I teach my kids? Where do they start? I'll tell you. They need to get the idea. They don't need to, but I would advise that they've got the idea of them teaching the children completely out of their heads because that's not how it works. I think we're born with an innate awe and respect and wonder. We're born with that. It, it is in us and it reflects our our role in this big, wild, natural world. We're born with it and we don't need taught it. It's there. So if people are at home and they're wanting to be outside with their kids and they're wanting to learn about the natural world, I think they're going to learn more from actually allowing their kids to be in the natural world than what they could ever teach them. So I think allow themselves to be led by these really small, beautiful minds that are part of that world in a much more real and living way, maybe, than what their parents are. I mean, really get down with them on that level because children know instinctively that they're part of that mother muck. Children will teach you what you need to know. And I think it's really just about being. Being in those spaces is the teacher. It's not going on the internet to find out what such and such is. Or It's great if you do want to learn to name things. You know, you just start basic, don't you? So it's just like the RSCB website or just Google green bug with six legs <laughs> or whatever. But actually the learning doesn't necessarily need facts or figures or names, the learning happens in the space that you occupy. You learn more in being in the wild. That's my experience of it. The learning is it's much more than in your mind. The learning happens everywhere. It's like a bodily thing. The more we can be in the natural world and the more we can respect and have a love for it, the more we're going to want to protect it. We protect the things we love. I firmly believe that that experience in the wild is when I say wild I don't just mean you know sort of a field in the middle of nowhere I also mean like a park where there's one little bit of grass or I mean the bottom of it underneath of a stone in a housing estate the wild is in us and we are in it and I think I always try to get that idea across in, in anything that I write that the natural world doesn't owe us anything so it's not I did experience healing and the natural world was part of that journey, but also so was a year of therapy, you know, so was learning to ask for help. So I think there's this real concept of this nature cure and I'm wary of it because I think we're all so different and it's almost offensive to someone. I've, I've heard people say to people who've been struggling with their mental health, oh, you know, have, have you tried wild swimming? Or, you know, maybe if you got outside a bit more. And actually, yes, maybe those things would help. But also, maybe going and talking about what you've gone through would help. Yeah. So I think there needs to be more of an awareness that we are wild creatures. and We live in a wild world, even though some of us have great internet, some of us don't like me, <laughs> or we can use, you know, all these pieces of technology. But to our core, like possibly we experience it more so when we're ill, we realise that we are blood and bone, we are guts, and and we are 
the things that make our garden up as well. I think increasingly during the pandemic, people have realised this more, more and more and more. More people got outdoors during the early part of the pandemic than had collectively for many years before. Yeah. There's a reason why in a time of need, we're drawn to the spaces outside our boxes. And we need to really think about why that is and really think about what that means for our place. Absolutely. <laughs> Kerry, this has been absolutely brilliant to talk to you. Can I ask you what else is in the pipeline? Yes, that's a lovely question. No one's asked me that before. I am currently working on my second book and that's going to be taking up a lot of my time in the coming while. But I'm also working on a lot of like really small, really gorgeous projects. So I'm hoping to work, for example, with a really amazing stone carver called Joe Sweeting. So we're working on a small little broadsheet. So some of my words will be carved out by this incredible woman. Oh, lovely. That's really fun. Yeah. Um, and so I'm also doing a few little radio pieces, which I always was a bit worried about and paranoid about. But actually, I'm now really, really excited about because I think what a privilege as a writer to bring your words to people in your voice. So that's a really nice thing. But yeah, book two is going to be quite different, maybe even a bit more hybrid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I hope that I hope that you read that one thing. Oh, I look forward to it. You have a lovely way with words. Thank you. I I really appreciate that. Hello, Hannah here to give you 10 good reasons to subscribe to Standard Issue, wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. Number one, I've been on the phone to historian and TV presenter Lucy Worsley to chat about the Blitz spirit and her new documentary for the BBC. Number two, Mickey's been talking to Rebecca Watson about sexual assault, the self and her debut novel, Little Scratch. Number three. I've been on the blower to talk death, cake and body image with actress Katie Wicks ahead of the release of her memoir, Delicacy. Number four, Jen's got a date with journalist Nell Frizzell to talk about her new book, The Panic Years. And by date, I mean, of course, a Zoom call. Number five, I'm going to be chatting to Relate about how the nation's relationships are faring in lockdown and what you can do if yours is struggling. Number six, we've got a new flicking arriving soon. And a new Outside the Box. Number seven, Mickey's going to be chatting to all-round excellent woman Kate Fox, whose bold and funny new volume of poetry, The Oscillations, explores distance and isolation in the pandemic. Number eight, we've got plenty of excellent International Women's Day content coming your way. Number nine, pressing subscribe means there's no chance you're going to miss any of this podcast goodness. And number ten, we're finally there. You will make us happy which I know is your life's desire. Thank you. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. I'm joined via Zoom by commentator and former world number five tennis player, Joe Dury, to talk to me about the Australian Open, which is happening next week. Joe, hello. Hello, Jen. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. Just, you know, living La Vida lockdown, as as is everyone. (laughs) 
Yeah. I know that you will be commentating on the Australian Open from afar this year. Yes. I'm sure you've got lots of thoughts on, on what's been going on out there. In particular, I wanted to ask you about the 72 players currently in quarantine. Novak Djokovic, for example, he's not exactly covered himself in glory in, in some of the things he said. But it's very easy for me to slag them off as someone who's never done it before. You've actually played in quite a few Grand Slams yourself. Do they have a point? Do you know, it's interesting about Novak Djokovic, isn't it? He always seems to get a lot of stick. And, you know, I've been a bit critical of him in the past. But funnily enough, I do actually think he was trying to argue for the players who were in that very tough quarantine where they're not let out of the hotel. And he was trying to find a way for them maybe to come out a little bit earlier and be able to practice. So I think he was actually arguing for them. He wasn't arguing for himself as such. But things are very tense out there, as you can imagine, you know, with everything that Australia has gone through and the world's gone through at the moment, to have what some people see as these, you know, kind of rich superstar tennis players jetting in on these planes, everything's paid for, the hotels are paid for, all they've got to do is just stay in their room for 14 days, like ordinary people have to do. From a tennis player's point of view, I know how quickly you can lose that fitness that you've built up over the weeks coming up to a a major tour and the Grand Slam looming. And however much you're trying to run around your hotel room, you know, (laughs) try and know Heather Watson did 5Ks and she said her ankles were killing her because of all the twists and turns on I expect the the hotel will have to repair all the carpets afterwards as well, by the way. So, you know, whatever exercise you're doing, the bike, the weights, and whatever you can improvise in your room, it is just not the same as going out in the weather, in the, the heat, the sun, especially when you come from Northern Europe, to get going. And from a player's point of view, I mean, it, it must be very difficult for them, but of course they have to do it. My mum does this thing um my mum's 72 and she's uh, you know staying staying indoors by herself at the moment she does this thing where she um she does laps of the garden and the garden is not big by the way <laughs> good for <laughs> to, her to though. get her step count up <laughs> it is really bizarre when you think about like an elite tennis player doing that so apart from the obvious physical issues because tennis is quite a psychological game isn't it what will that be doing to the mindset of a, of a professional tennis mm. player I'm just trying to imagine myself in that situation I, I think I, I would go from the edge of madness I think of trying to invent ways to do different things every day to a sort of zen state where you think oh, I can't do anything about it I'm just gonna sit here and breathe and you know get through it i can imagine going in these waves of energy and then almost maybe depression about it because you know they're so keyed up they're so on the edge anyway always the edge of fitness going into injury the edge of being able to compete you know mentally emotionally uh as trying to stay calm at the same time it must be playing with their minds i mean being alone especially if it's just you in that room the thoughts that you know, the angel and the devil on your shoulder are having with your own minds. It, it, it must be uh, quite a battle sometimes in some of their minds. Victoria Azarenka, to me, has gone this philosophical kind of way of, you know, a nice little saying every day on Twitter to, you know, we've got to cope with it, get on with it, you know, you're stronger if you cope with it and all this. And then you've got some of the, I think, the French male tennis players are <laughs> going slightly mad, I feel. <laughs> and you can see the opposite ends of the spectrum there 
of probably what we're all going through in one way yeah, or another. That's very true. One of the players who's out of quarantine tomorrow, as we speak, so tomorrow will be the 28th of January, and the tournament kicks off on the 8th of February. So okay. she's got a little bit of time, which is good news. And one who our listeners will be particularly interested in is obviously Joe Conta. The last season, which obviously was a bit of a washout anyway for, for yeah. COVID-related reasons. But that was sort of blighted for her by a knee injury. How is she looking now? Does Does anyone know how she's looking now? Oh, do you um, have anything to base this on? It's, do you know, it's difficult, isn't it, to evaluate any one of these players uh, at the moment. And what she play, uh, US Open, and then she didn't play anything, came, came into last year, knee was still bothering her. And, you know, she had some wins, but some losses as well that, um, you know, you wouldn't have thought that she would have. So maybe the time's been better for her, you know, to actually get her body back and build it up it can take quite a while with a knee injury believe me I've had so many of them but I absolutely know that you think you've got to a point where you can push it and maybe you're not quite there and I think she was kind of going through those stages so it might have helped her actually sort of coming into this but uh, as you say uh, how will we know until things actually start up so obviously if we've got a lot of people a lot of players in quarantine a lot of players who haven't necessarily played that much in the last season are we going to be seeing some potentially quite crap tennis joe (laughs) (laughs) that's a good point actually i think we're seeing maybe seeing some strange tennis going on where players are just trying to find their form because again you know players coming to australia usually get their quite a long time before so they don't really have a Christmas and New Year they're down there they want to get there at least a week and a bit before because the sun is just so Mm. strong in Australia it's getting used to that the conditions and the courts and everything that goes with it a New Year you know most of them have usually put in a few weeks of tinkering with their game doing maybe new fitness regimes and I think always you get some strange results in Australia so this time, then we might even be more quirky. So I am just absolutely cannot wait to see some of these matches, to be quite honest, to see who's coped the best, especially the ones who've been in hard quarantine. You've got the ones who've been in the sort of softer quarantine, and then you've got the ones in Adelaide who, you know, seems to be able to do whatever they like. So the three sets of players is, is going to be very interesting to see who reacts the best. I mean, you've mentioned it just then. You said you can get some quirky results in Australia. So I was wondering, are there any familiar faces that might be missing this year? And also, what about new ones to watch? Because last year's winner was Sophia Kenin, who's relatively yeah. new, I think, then. It was her first, yeah. her first Grand Slam title. Yeah. Before that was Naomi Osaka, who was just sort of establishing her yeah. dominance at the time. Are there any other kind of new faces to watch out for? Well, I mean, Iga Swiatek for a start, from winning Roland Garros. So she's only 19 still. And uh, the way she went about that tournament... Uh, was just fantastic. I really enjoyed watching her. And then for me, the, the one, you know, haven't played all of last year, Bianca Andreescu, not a single ball hit in 2020. So, you know, how is she going to be playing a match again? Hopefully her body will stand up to it because she seems to get injured very easily, unfortunately. 
still very young, very talented player. Also for me, Elena Rybakina, who's 21, had some great results, a lot of winning actually in the tournament. She played 11 events in 2020, another one to look out for. If we go slightly older, it was great to see Victoria Azarenka come storming back last year from you know all the problems that she's had with the custody of her child and trying to work that out, all the other problems, off-court problems, because you can still see she's a very classy tennis player. I thought for a while she lost the edge because she had too many other things going on, you know, in her life, I think, to fully concentrate on her tennis. But now she can. I, I, I think she's going to be very interesting because she loves Australia. Mm. She, she always plays well down there. I can say she's a big, she's a big favourite there, isn't she? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, can't talk about any Grand Slam without mentioning Serena. Well... <laughs> Well, Serena, interesting. What, exactly. Is it all over for Serena Williams? But you know what? I wouldn't count her out. Honestly, her, her appetite to try and get this last, well, number 24 in the Grand Slams. I think she'd like 25, really, so that she'd be above sure. everybody. You know, look, she got to the semi-final of the US Open and, and lost to Victoria Azarenka in three sets. So you're telling me she still can't win a Grand Slam? I would not count her out at all. You know, obviously, what, she's 39, nearly 40. It's absolutely incredible that she first started playing Grand Slams in 1998. Wow. I mean, just incredible how she's still out there doing it and wants to do it and has the motivation to do it and everything she's gone through. So, wow, she's always in the mix for me. So what about, we haven't mentioned her yet, but she is currently the world number one. And I spoke to Judy Murray a few weeks ago who said she thought that Ash Barty would be one to watch. What, what do you think? She's mm. had a bit of a bit of an edge on some of the other players and that she's already there and is used to playing in Australia. Mm. Well, quite, yeah. I mean, of course, she hasn't played for, for many months, but, I mean, at the start of 2020, she... She was playing great, and she's won a Grand Slam, number one in the world. She's got nothing left to prove there. I think she would love to do well in Australia. I think, you know, she can cope with it. I think a lot of players in their own Grand Slam do find it harder to cope mm. with all the media attention and the crowd and everything that goes with it. But the way she's so grounded uh, as a person, and the team around her are the same. So... If she can cope with the conditions and the expectation, uh, and I think she can, again, another one in the mix. I think the women's game's great at the moment. I just love it. We can talk about so many different players who have a charm. I think it's very interesting, and I've said this a lot over the past few years, there is this kind of narrative that the women's game is not as good because you never know who's going to win it, because the, 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 you know, the top seeds are... They're always all over the place in, in any Grand Slam, pretty much. Whereas the men's side, there are always fewer surprises. You know, there's there's probably four people you could say is, is going to be one of them. Yeah. I think that makes it more interesting to watch the women's game. I definitely think that the standard of the women's game at the moment is very high. I think in the past, everyone judged it by Serena. Because Serena was the one to to beat and when she was fit she kind of won everything and when she didn't play everyone said well Serena's not playing so whoever wins is only winning because Serena's not there mm. and I think now these players are beating Serena anyway you know in the tournaments and 
it's very good tennis and the variety of player in the women's game is huge. You've, you've got the big baseliner who hits huge shots. You've got the skill and artistry of other players. You've even got, you know, the slice and coming into the net. So varied. I just don't think they're talked up enough. I really don't. It's got stars in, in the women's game. Naomi Osaka, obviously, is becoming much more well-known. But do people know Sophia Kennan? Alina Svitolina, Simona Halep's more well-known. You know, Arena Sabalenka, who we, we haven't really talked about, but she's on a win streak at the moment. She's just beating everybody up. And her, she's got such a huge power game. Really exciting player. You know, are they really put out there enough so that people know them and can appreciate how good they are? It kind of frustrates me a bit. So who should be doing that? Who should be responsible for, for making that happen? Well, I, the WTA should be out there, you know, and I do also work the other side as a commentator. And, you know, do, do we get enough information about these players? Are there enough good interviews so that they can bring out the personalities behind the scenes are people helping them to do this as well there's a lot more i just think could go into women's tennis to to showcase them because it is so good I spoke to judy murray recently but i spoke to her a couple of years ago as well and she said the same that no one knows who these people are and they're not being pushed forwards enough because i think we see a lot of the time with really in, in different sports with top athletes they're quite shielded by their clubs by their management mm. I think there's probably always the fear that they're going to say something daft and, and, and people will turn on them <laughs> as, as is our culture at the moment to be fair mm. but do you think that that is something we need to do more of in order to sort of connect with sport and athletes a bit better I think yeah you're right from my day I didn't even sometimes even have a coach with me you know, I just get out there and play uh, now they're cocooned by, you know, an agent and a, a coach and there's always people hovering and, you know, how many you're allowed to ask three questions. So, you know, what are your three questions you're going to ask, you know, about the match you just played, who are you going to play next? You can't really get into the player and and sort of pull something out of them that's a little bit more interesting. But I'm sure the players get fed up with it as well because they get asked the same thing every time. So, yes, I think they're overprotected and yet, they have the social media where <laughs> they try and put more of themselves mm. out there. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. It's just a strange world we have at the moment. Joe, you were pretty handy with a racket yourself. This year it's 30 years since you won the mixed doubles at the Australian Open with Jeremy Bates. Oh my God, is it? Yeah. It's the, the, <laughs> oh dear. Yeah, 1991 apparently. So... I was wondering how much you feel the landscape has changed for female players in that time. Do you think they've come on leaps and bounds or do you think it's a worrying lack of progress in 30 years? Uh, No, I think it's come on leaps and bounds with the equal prize money. Just generally standard being recognised to a certain extent. I still think women are still fighting for their place on the tour, you know, maybe ATP, WTA, mergers and all this has been talked about. It's a bigger problem within tennis, isn't it, really, with all the different organisations all seem to be fighting against each other, all trying to make their mark. You know, WTA are trying to get in there, but not sure they really are punching through with the product they have. I think could be still more done, that's for sure, yeah. I mean, the product they have is 
incredible when you think about I yeah. can't remember what year it was now it was a few years ago now probably I think 2017 maybe 2016 where the Joe Conta match you know had mm. the, the biggest audience of any of the Wimbledon matches that year that's and obviously right, that's because yeah. it was in the UK and she's yeah. a, a British yeah. player etc etc but yeah. still that that's is a, pretty big yeah that's a great <laughs> product to have yes it sure is what do you think about the proposed merger just for anyone listening who doesn't know and the ATP and the WTA are the men's and women's sort of tennis associations I guess yeah um respectively yes. so some people would say it'd be a good thing bring it all together have everyone under one roof others might argue if we are all under one roof inevitably the women are going to be the last people to be thought about to be considered yes I mean I, I do wish that you know everyone in tennis would come together more because it, it just seems to harm each other, especially with what's happened in, you know, last year and coming into this year, because, you know, it's going to be lack of sponsorship, prize money and opportunity because the world is suffering at the moment. So it'd be a good time for everyone to get together and fight together. But saying that, I, I wouldn't want the WTA to suffer from merging, say, with the ATP, the men's so the men's is always kind of the power play in in the relationship. It has to be a, an equal relationship. And I still, at the moment, don't think that's quite there. So I think there is a lot of talk to go on. And, you know, even just some of the views of the men tennis players mm. who are like, well, we don't want the women. Why do we need the women? They can't see the opportunity for a joining of the men's and women's, which I think would be very productive. But you still have to get over these age-old kind of attitudes of people to um, make these things work. You're going to be covering this for Eurosport. For good old Eurosport, yeah. <laughs> so you can watch coverage of the Australian Open on the Eurosport player, which is available online. And it's actually, I am going to say this, they do uh, occasionally pay me to work for them, but I will say I do think that the Eurosport player is very good value indeed. And Joe, where can we follow you on the socials, as I think people call them, <laughs> if we want to see what you what your thoughts are about the tournament as it goes along? Usually I'm on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> At Joe Jury. There you go. Join me. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you very much, Joe. We look Thank forward you. to seeing what you make of it all. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Hannah, it was your pick this week, so what film had us repeatedly shouting, Oh my fucking God! <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. So, this week we watched The Jazz Singer, released in 1980 in the US and February 1981 in the UK, based on the 1925 play of the same name by Samson Raphaelson. It's the fourth, and let's hope the last, adaptation of the play. <laughs> the first was a 1927 film which starred Al Jolson, whose career inspired the play in the first place. It was made as a film in 1952, and then in 1959 into a television film. They couldn't get enough of it in the 50s. This version is directed by Richard Fleischer, whose varied career also saw him direct Soylent Green, Tora, 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 and Conan the Barbarian. Wow. Wow. (laughs) And stars Neil Diamond in his acting debut, if you can call what he is doing here. 
acting. It also stars Sir Laurence Olivier and Lucy Arnaz, daughter of Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. And perhaps we can chat about whether bad acting is a virus we can infect a whole film in a bit. <laughs> if you've not managed to see one of the 372 versions of The Jazz Singer, here's a bit about the plot. Yusel Rabinovich is a fifth-generation Jewish cantor living in New York with his wife and his dad and is secretly performing as Jess Robin in a friend's band and harbouring dreams of being a star. When he leaves tradition behind and heads out to California to make his name, he, and sadly we, enter a world of whining, <laughs> disowning, toxic masculinity and sparkly, sparkly shirts. My eyes! <laughs> the film did make £27 million at the box office, but was a critical disappointment on release. <laughs> yes, it was! <laughs> Golden Raspberry Award founder John J.B. Wilson's book, The Official Razzie Movie Guide, lists it as one of the 100 most enjoyably bad movies ever made. Although it is worth pointing out that the jazz singer did, and to some degree still does, receive praise for putting Jewish life and traditions on the big screen. That said, here's a really interesting point. A 1980 review in the Chicago Times said, The 1925 play spoke to the generation of immigrant children who wanted to break away from the tradition of their parents. But 55 years later, when America's ethnic groups are rediscovering their traditions, we don't accept Jess's career move as easily. Frankly, we see his religious traditions as having more value than the plastic Hollywood pop world he yearns to inhabit. Mm -hmm. And I would be interested for us to chat about, or in fact anybody's opinions, on what is winning in 2021, faith or fame. Ooh. Where the jazz singer can be deemed a success is in the soundtrack, where it sold 5 million copies in the US alone, making it one of those rare occasions where the music is better known than the film. See also, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Although it's important to point out that in the case of that film, it's a travesty, and in the case of The Jazz Singer, it's an absolute blessing. So, lots to talk about here. <coughs> Blackface. But just to clarify... <laughs> God! <laughs> but just to clarify something I said last week, having now watched it, I'm not actually sure that I had seen this before. Only the last 15 minutes or so seemed even vaguely familiar so I'm guessing I'd not so much seen it as wandered into a room where it was on. I was trying to work out how old I was, and all I can say is uh, it must have been before I decided that any man can be hot if he grows a beard and puts on a cowboy hat. Because no, Neil, no. Yeah. Guys, yeah. thoughts? Oh, my God. Oh, my fucking God. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> OMFG, OMFG, OMFG. Where to start? I mean, okay, let's start with the blackface, shall we? Shall we start with that? I mean... He... I was just like, no, no. Oh, God, he did. Maybe it's worth saying this is in no way a defence of it, but contextually, this has actually been a central plot point to the jazz singer since 1927. But yes, they should have known better in 1980. Although, I was thinking about this as I was watching it, because I did discover... Quite recently, actually, I mean, in the last 10 years, quite recently, that the film Short Circuit, the guy that plays Benjamin, he's not an Asian man. Oh, no, no. And that was the 80s, wasn't it, Short Circuit? So I guess, like, this is something that people were... It was probably still vaguely acceptable at that yeah. point in time. I don't know. 
Well, whether it should have been is another matter, but yeah. Well, no, I mean, I I agree with you, obviously. But yeah, I I was not expecting this plot twist. I tell you who didn't like it. Ernie Hudson was not happy about it happening in the club he was in when Neil Diamond puts on blackface, encouraged by the black friends of his who are in who were also singing because one of their usual singers is ill they've got a talent scout in and so they want to look like their usual quartet and he gets away with it for far too long before the audience go hang on he's missed his hands that's literally how they work it out and ernie hudson maybe best known as winston zeddemore from ghostbusters as a strop and i was with him i was with him every step of the way Obviously, I'm not Jewish, and so I don't know. But I I thought that a lot of the representations in the film were... And I'm going to say Laurence Olivier, very much one of the perpetrators of this. Quite caricature-like and really stereotypical. And, yeah, I I don't know. I don't know if Jewish people found this offensive at the time or now. I I would say no, they didn't. In fact, I found some stuff that Jewish people had written at the time and subsequently about how Jewishness in film was still pretty rare. I mean, I suppose Barbara Streisand was doing stuff that had sort of Jewish traditions in it, but that actually some representation was a positive thing. I mean, that surprises me so much, to be honest. (laughs) I thought Laurence Olivier was ridiculous just ridiculous i mean it is absolutely his best comedy performance i just don't think that's what he had in mind when he was delivering it it's yeah it's solid ham it's just a slab of solid ham which you know when playing someone who doesn't eat pork seems out of order basically it's like a well-worn theme about a man following his dreams obviously Mm. and have either of you seen wild rose no, I've it's heard of it. It's Jesse Buckley. Yes, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting, you know, that that's basically the same premise. It's about someone who wants to break free of one background and make it in another background, but has family ties that should be keeping them. And it's staggering that, I, I, I mean, A, it's a much more modern film. It's made quite recently, so obviously it has modern sensibilities. But also it's staggering the difference in the outcome for a character that's male and a character that's female. But also, is she an absolute asshole to literally everyone she knows in, in the process of following her dreams? Because <laughs> she, she kind revolting. Is. She kind of is. And not to do a spoiler, but the end of the film is that she is a better person, whereas the end of this film is that he is a famous person. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is all very interesting, but the biggest question it raised for me was, how would a middle-aged man not know what a palm tree was? <laughs> how old is he meant to be? <laughs> I, that's the thing that baffled me the most. Is he meant to be a teenager? Because he doesn't fucking look it. And I think he's supposed to be 30. That's sort of how old Al Johnson was when that play was written about him. I tell you what, if Neil Diamond is meant to be 30, then a Mm. canter's life is a lot harder than I ever gave it credit for. And apparently much more thrilling, according to his first wife. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So should we talk about just the, I know toxic masculinity gets overused, but the sheer volume of it in this film. I sent Mickey a message at one point that said, if she takes him back, I'm going to be fucking livid. And guess what happened? She didn't even question it. She literally just like, oh, great, you're back. (laughs) And also, the thing that pissed me off about that, apart from the fact that she did it, was that her character, she's kind of like 
made to seem like this quite feisty go-getting, you know, mm. whatever. She's a pistol. Yeah, and then she's just <laughs> like, oh, good, you've been gone for like, I, I don't know, 18 months? I've had your child in the interim period. Wicked, you're back. Let's just crack on, shall we? What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I full agree. Sorry, spoiler yeah. alert. <laughs> yeah. I mean, his family, like, his responsibilities are very much seen as a whining, guilt-tripping, like, just soul-sucking, just body, aren't they? There's no one is likeable. There's no... I had sympathy for absolutely no one in this film. You know, you'd think that he has gone off to find his real self and follow his dream and left his missus behind and his dad behind. Are we supposed to feel sorry for them? No, because they're fucking annoying. I'd want to <laughs> run away as well. And then, but you're just like, but I have no sympathy for him because he's an absolute prick. So, yeah, he is hated awful. everyone. Can I just tell you one of my favourite bits in it? Um, one of my favourite bits is when Bubba... That's his name, isn't it? The guy, mm. the guy in his sort of backing singer band who he's Jenny going out Samuel to Samuel Fields. Fields, yeah. Who he's going out to um, to meet uh, in LA, or has already gone to LA. I think this is before he's supposed to be going out there. Anyway, he phones him and he says to him, "It's paradise here," and they're literally sitting on the side of a fucking motorway <laughs> under like a Coca Cola umbrella or some yeah. shit, and it looks and, and like he's on a, a shithole inexplicably. He's on a landline. <laughs> Yeah, that is amazing. And also, like they literally they ma- they managed to make everything look shit in this film. Like she's got a house on the side. Like I think it's meant to be like Venice Beach or something like that because he makes some joke about like where are the gondolas or some crap like that. And even that looks shit. She's got a house like literally next to the beach, and the beach looks shit. How have they made everything look shit in this film? Is that just the seventies slash eighties? Yeah, maybe. Maybe it was all relative. Maybe they made things look shit to make Neil Diamond look better. Well, it's yeah, something I mean, needed to happen, didn't it, to be fair? <laughs> yeah. I liked it when he was on stage at the end in his incredible disco ball of a shirt and then just started squatting like his trousers were too tight. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's when Hannah said to me, do you think Neil Diamond thinks he's attractive? And I was yeah. like, I think he probably does. I think. I said this to you um, yesterday, but I, I think he looks a bit like Sweep from the city. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Oh. Yeah. Well, and the one thing that we haven't mentioned that we absolutely should mention is the music. The top three minutes and the end three minutes of this are the best because they are the two instances of the use of America, which we can all agree is an absolute banger. <laughs> but we have to confess that we got very excited last week and had a had a Neil Diamond marathon while we were putting together the playlist. I feel dirty now. It's yeah. dirtied me. <laughs> it's sullied the memory of joy of prancing about in front of the cat to... Forever in blue jeans in America. It's absolutely ruined that for me. I don't have much prior knowledge of, of Neil Diamond. My parents didn't listen to him. As you said, I, you know, I, I don't have enough drunk aunties for, <laughs> to have uh, facilitated this over, over the years. His voice was quite surprising to me. It's quite, um, it's quite gravelly, isn't it? It is very gravelly for a 17-year-old. <laughs> On the note of theme tunes, when we've um, we've come up with our theory that, that the worse the film, the more it relies on its theme tunes. Obviously, this kicks off with America. It doesn't fuck about. It goes straight in there. And I thought maybe it'd be like Rocky Five, where it was just continuously in the background. But in fact, theme tune-wise, I made a note. America is played twice. It tops and tails it. 
Love on the Rocks gets four little outings <laughs> uh, with a lovely little uh, doom scroll there where like, he's coming up with a song as his soon-to-be not-wife anymore is wandering about going, why would you want to leave? And <laughs> Hello Again, Hello is oh, played wow. three million times. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean... <laughs> Seems pretty clear to me, but for the clarity, (laughs) has time been kind to the jazz singer? I'm going to have to give that a big fat no, Hannah. No. (laughs) Yeah. Neil Diamond is people. (laughs) Oh, dear God. Dated. Okay, what are we watching next week? Yep, yep, it's me next week, and we will be asking, who is Robert De Niro talking to as we watch 1976's Taxi Driver? Wowzers, something serious after two weeks of... What are you talking about? Oh my about? God, how bad can a film possibly get? I don't know what the theme tune is, but I'm keen to find out. Standard Issue. For all women.